0: Welcome back, everyone, to episode 30 of Life & Lit. This week, we are taking it back to one of our tried-and-true genres, a wartime novel, a historical fiction. This week, we are covering The Girl You Left Behind by Jojo Moyes. I'm Sydney. And I'm Paige. And this is Life & Lit.
1: Time. i thought of the time i said or i almost said your name is mine <laughs> and now i like overthink it
0: i know i, I think said it the- and i was like did i say the right name <laughs> i think of that literally every single time i say and i like i'm sydney and then i pause for you and i'm like is she gonna say the right <laughs> is <name> she-, <laughs> or she gonna, gonna jump happen? in here or
1: yeah i oh man never forget
0: So funny. Hey, sometimes the most basic things are the most challenging, and your name is one of those. Okay, exactly. Being an adult is
1: hard enough. Why do you expect me to remember my name?
0: Yes, well, it's probably because obviously we've known each other our whole lives pretty much, so it's like we're introducing ourselves every time, even though we've been there forever. So, (laughs) yeah, so. This book is one that you sent to me and recommended. Yeah. I think it was either like a birthday package or something, but you sent me this because we had both read another book by Jojo Moyes, which I hope I'm saying her name right. Usually I try to look it I don't up. Know. Is it Moyes or Moyes? I don't know.
1: We can I alternate know.
0: between. Yeah. The and then we'll be right like 50% of the time unless she's got some other weird pronunciation in there. But Exactly. We both had read Me Before You, and I think we went and watched the movie together, didn't we? Yes, yes, because I remember that, because I
1: brought tissues, because I knew I was going to cry, because I sobbed at the end of the book, and you were like, you brought tissues, and like (laughs) you were judging me,
0: and then...
1: Who had to borrow a tissue from me? It was yeah. you. So I was
0: going to say, I definitely <laughs> cried in that movie. I remember. Yes, but you so. were hardcore
1: judging at the beginning.
0: <laughs> well, and that's been out for a few years. And listen, baby Sydney used to not cry very much, mm-hmm. like never hardly, unless it was like an animal dying and then I would cry. But now adult Sydney just cries all the time at everything. Oh, yeah, every day. It's <laughs> healthy. Like, Yeah, (laughs) so I would not make that mistake now, and I would not judge you for crying now, but Younger Sydney, probably did.
1: I actually read the whole Me Before You series. There's a series,
0: yeah. I knew that there were, like, different novels, but I I think I only read the one.
1: Yeah, there are three. They're pretty good. I think, you know, the first one is the best, but the other two are worthy follow-ups, and then... We also read The Giver of Stars.
0: Oh, yeah. I
1: forgot about that one. Yeah, that one was really good. That one was really good. So I I saw, I think I like saw this book by her on one of like the buy one, get one half off at Barnes & Noble. And I was like, she's never led me astray on her other books. And I picked it up. And then I knew I had to send it to you.
0: Yes. And it did not disappoint. I read this on the plane on a trip to Austin that I went to earlier this summer with my friend Teal. So, shout out to Teal because she's one of our faithful listeners. But I started it on that trip and finished it on that trip. Because it, like, just pulled me in so quickly that I wanted to know what was going to happen. But I yes, did Yeah, little... it has that dual timeline that you
1: are such a big fan of.
0: Oh, absolutely. And it's set during a war, like...
1: That's what more I can two, do
0: on. Yes, that's two immediate check boxes for me. So, obviously, I was invested in this. But I did a little brief research on Jojo Moyes, or Moyes. Apologies for mispronouncing that. But um, one thing that I picked up from her Wikipedia page was that she, when she was getting started as a writer, she had had three, she had sent in three different, proposals for novels that she had started or finished. And all three got rejected. And so she had one more idea. And she's like, I'm going to try this fourth novel. And if I get rejected, then I'm going to give up. And but like, this is kind of the last time because I've already had three novels get rejected. I'm going to try this fourth one. And she sent three chapters of it, like out to publishers to see if they were interested. And immediately she had six publishers start a bidding war on who would get the rights for it. Yes, JoJo. I love that I know. For her. I thought that was so cool. I'm like, this is why you don't ever give up because yes. it would be so easy to have even that first rejection and then let alone a second and a third to feel like, okay, I, I can't make it. But if you just take that one extra try, it blossomed into this. Um, Do you know which she book that was? One? I don't. I didn't write it down. I think it was one of her earlier ones that I hadn't read because um, I've only read this one, Me Before You, and then Give Her Up Stars. So I think it was one of her earlier ones. But now I want to read it because, like, obviously it was good enough to get in a bidding war. Yeah. And then she. Wrote Me Before You, obviously, in that series, and then that was adapted into the film that you and I both saw, and she wrote the screenplay for the film, which I always love to see. Oh, that I because... love
1: that. yeah, it was very accurate, very true to the book. So that makes sense. Yes.
0: And you know, especially with a book like that, I think it could have very easily gone off the rails. Oh yes. If someone else had been in control of the movie. So I was absolutely to see that. So I will go ahead and uh, dive into, I almost said dump in, (laughs) like (laughs) dive and jump together. (laughs) We're just going to dove right into this. (laughs) We're going to dump on in here. So I will dive into the episode of The Girl You Left Behind. And of course, we will start with the book summary. And this is coming straight from the back of the book. This is The Girl You Left Behind by Jojo Moyes. France, 1916. Sophie Leferve must keep her family safe while her adored husband, Edouard, fights at the front. When their town falls to the Germans in the midst of World War I, she is forced to serve them every evening at her hotel. From the moment the new commandant set eyes on Sophie's portrait, painted by her husband, an artist, a dangerous obsession is born, one that will lead Sophie to make a dark and terrible decision. Almost a century later, Sophie's portrait hangs in the home of Liv Halston, a wedding gift from her young husband before his sudden death. After a chance encounter reveals the portrait's true worth, a battle begins over its troubled history. As the layers of the painting's shadowy past are revealed, Liv's world is turned upside down all over again, and her belief in what is right is put to the ultimate test. Oh, I forgot how good this was. It's been a long
1: time since I've read it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I don't even remember when you sent this to me, but probably like my birthday or Christmas. Yeah, I think so.
1: And then I had read it like several months before I gave it to you. So it's been a long time.
0: It's been a while, but I'm excited to dive back into this. So we will put our spoiler alert here. You've heard the summary. If this is something that you would be interested in, press pause, go read the book, go listen to it somewhere, and then come back and finish the episode, because we're going to get into this plot, and there is a lot in this. Like, it's a moderate-sized book. Yes. It clocks in at, like, let me look here, 300-some-odd pages, yes. but there's a lot in this. Oh, yeah, Definitely. There's so many like subplots and characters and things in this, though, that she packs a lot into a decent sized book. So, yeah. So, it.
1: we decided, or you texted me and you're like, I think we should just stick to like the main storylines. Cause, like you said, it branches off. This could easily be like a two hour episode. <laughs> oh, but yeah. I also love to leave some stuff to be discovered. For the listeners, like if you haven't read this book and we inspire you to do so, like even if you listen to our deep dive, chances are there's still a lot to be discovered in the
0: book. Definitely. There will be nuggets and side characters and side plots that we're going to like gloss over or briefly touch on. But there's still a lot to be discovered. So this book starts off with... Sophie's point of view so you mentioned earlier that it is a dual perspective storyline which we love and it starts off from Sophie's point of view in the fall of 1916 in her town of Saint Peron, France and she lives in the town she's lived there her whole life she is her family owns a hotel like boarding house type um that she lives at with her sister her sister's two children and then their little brother because um her parents are gone and then Sophie's husband Edward is off on the front lines and so is her sister's husband so it's kind of just the ladies and the kids left in this town to fend for themselves and they own this hotel boarding house called La Coque Roche. So the Red Rooster. And it's got like a bar dining area attached to it and then rooms attached. So it's a pretty good business. A lot of the locals come there to eat, to drink, um, obviously not to spend the night. But they do provide lodging for out-of-town guests. But they're a respected family in town. And it's a small town, which is one thing that I liked. There's so many, like, minor characters in this first part. Yes. That I feel like you get a really good snapshot of the town and the setting and the townspeople. Yeah,
1: they have all those, like, quirky little characters. And it kind of reminded me of Gilmore Girls. (laughs) I knew you were going to say it because I was thinking it. I was like, it's like you do it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Just like all the quirky little townspeople that play, you know, maybe a small role, but also a significant role in Mm -hmm. the book. So I did. Yeah, I agree. I liked the small town setting for this. I felt like you just, I don't know. It really set the scene very well.
0: Yes. And so the conflict really kicks off when the, Germans move into town. Occupy France and parts of France and they've slowly trickled in to now this small town. So everybody is super on edge because they don't like this, obviously. Um, and they're wondering like how things are gonna change, what the future is gonna hold. France and Germany are on opposite sides, so there's obviously a lot of tension. And it only grows because some of the soldiers take up residence in the Lafer family inn. So, this is like a double-edged sword because the townspeople view this as Sophie and her family helping the Germans. And, like, selling out almost to them. But... Sophie knows, like, there's really no choice because they've taken over your town now. Like, they're running the shots. You've been occupied by them. And she thinks it's better just to, like, keep your head down and go with the flow and do the bare minimum that you have to do to keep them happy, basically. They weren't Nazis yet, but I'd be willing to bet a lot of them became Nazis. So, really, it's probably my base is covered either way. Exactly. So, the future Nazis invaded. The future invaded. Nazis invaded. <laughs> they oh, would be back in 10 years. Yeah, exactly. So, the Germans move in and billet at her hotel. And so this. Obviously causes tension. There is a whole side plot with. Like before the Germans take up residence in their hotel. There's this whole side plot with another woman in town. Who is known to be a mistress of some of the Germans. And the town people absolutely shun her. Like throwing rocks as she walks down the street. Spitting on her. Cursing at her. They call her a traitor, a whore, all of this horrible stuff, because they think that she is a traitor. Like, she's, how could you stoop so low to sleep with the enemy? And so Sophie sees that. And so that only heightens the tension for when the the Germans, I'm going to do it. (laughs) When the future Nazis. (laughs) When the future Nazis decide to stay at their hotel and she's like okay now the town's gonna come for us yes which i just little tangent the
1: audacity of war just like continues to surprise me because i am one who like i will not even like invite myself over to somebody's house Without like them inviting me first, so to just like, oh, yeah, waltz into a town and take over and fly your little flag and take all their food. it just it's astounding what
0: humanity can do
1: it's yes. just,
0: but it's and you want to say so badly, like, why did the town let this happen or how did it let let this happen? But then you also feel that these people are just in survival mode, like,
1: oh, absolutely, I, yeah, know, they are. With,
0: With the woman that was sleeping with the enemy, quote, unquote, you find out later that she had a child and she was gaining special privileges. So it's like, yes, that is a a bad thing. But at the same time, if that's what stands between you and feeding your child.
1: Right. What would you do? What would you do?
0: Yeah. So.
1: And yeah, it. It's truly astounding because, like you said, all the men are off at war. So it's just the women and children there. So they really, you know, especially back then, didn't have a lot of, you know, ways to protect themselves. So they were protecting themselves by just letting it happen in kind of, you know, self-preservation mode.
0: Right. Because they'd seen what the Germans could do to anyone that tried to fight back. Like you would shot in the street and you would be made an example of. So... It's like, do you stand up for yourself and try to fight back when you will immediately die? Or do you hang on as long as you can and try to to make it some other way? So it's really an impossible choice. That's something we see so often in these novels in this time period. It's just impossible choices. War is humanity
1: at its worst. So I hesitate to say what I would do in any situation that I read about, you know, you just don't know.
0: Yes. And that's why I think I like these books because it really makes me think about a perspective shift of even though it's really easy to sit and like listen to the news and think about how the world is a dumpster fire right now. Oh, yeah. Like we're not here yet. We're not here right now. So at least I don't have to worry about, you know, feeding my children off of rations or being shot in the street because I didn't show my papers to a German fast enough, you know? Right. So the Germans take up residence and it's some of the higher ups. So they have like a lodging station outside of town, but some of them, the higher rankings are going to stay in this hotel. And they expect Sophie and her sister to wait on them cook for them they want hot meals at night they want entertainment and like we've said Sophie and her sister like didn't really have a choice and so they go along with it um, and in time they get a little bit of special favors like at first it was really hard for them to make food make this feast for Germans when they themselves were starving But they did such a great job and impressed the Germans so much that they let them eat the scraps, basically, which is still dehumanizing. But at the same time, that was the first warm and filling meal they'd had in months. So the commandant especially is drawn to Sophie and he comes into the hotel and sees this beautiful painting on the wall of her and he is just transfixed by it. And he's a art enthusiast, former artist, art enthusiast. And so he's really drawn to this painting because of how great it is. And he's, like, low-key obsessed with it, basically. Yeah. He wants it. Like, he wants to know all about it, wants to know who the artist was, which it was her husband, Edouard. He's an artist. And he wants to have it. And she's like, no, this is obviously very special to my family. This is, like, an institution. This is, like, the one thing I have left of my husband. So he agrees to leave it there at the hotel, but it's always this tension point. And it, like, him being drawn to the painting in turn draws him to Sophie because she is the elusive girl in the painting. Yes. And so they carry on this way in this fashion of housing the Germans and slowly the town's people start to turn on them. Like at first they think it'll be okay and they can, you know, do this that they've been required to do without really having to help them or while still keeping favor with the townspeople. But slowly they, they see the special treatment that the commandant gives Sophie and the townspeople are angry about it. They don't like it. They think that they're, you know, selling out to the Germans. And that's a slap in the face to all of the townspeople that are trying to keep up the good fight and trying to resist. Which I think it
1: was also a touch of, like, jealousy. Because they saw, like, the privilege and everything that they... Yes, it was outrage. Mm -hmm. But... I have to imagine there's a little bit of, you know, why do they get all this food? Why do they get this favor?
0: Exactly. It is, and it's jealousy because, I mean, I feel like any other, if it had been any other townsperson, they would have done the same thing. Like, it's so easy to sit there and say, no, I would never do that until Mm -hmm. you're starving and and you're worried about feeding your children and keeping your children healthy. And then you see this avenue to do that. And so Sophie really starts to empathize with the woman that the town had ostracized, that she herself had even ostracized. And there's one really tenuous, tensiony, I don't know the word for that, really big (laughs) moment of tension. There we go. (laughs) Sorry,
1: (laughs) that was just funny.
0: I'm, words are hard today. Um, <laughs> there's this really big moment of tension, like in the middle of town where this woman who has been ostracized and called a whore is hauled off by the Germans. And she, they're literally like carting her off in the middle of town. A crowd has started to draw. She's got her child with her, like a little four year old girl screaming and crying, doesn't know what's happening. And for whatever reason, the Germans have turned on her now. And while she before had been their mistress and kind of their friend, she's upset them and they've turned on her. And they're going to haul her off. So Sophie is like the only one in the town that has a moment of compassion for her, and she runs to the woman and grabs her ki- her daughter and is like, "She will be safe with me. I'll take care of her." Yeah,
1: which took break. I mean. That's such a selfless act. But then you also know that she was kind of allying herself with that woman
0: by taking her
1: daughter. So she was also taking the risk of the townspeople even further ostracizing her family.
0: Yes. So now
1: she's. Which. What? Sorry. One more time. Shame on you for not helping the kid. Oh, absolutely. The like' fact that only one person like that's just heartbreaking to me.
0: Yes. and to think of this poor little girl, like no matter if you think what the mother did is right or wrong, the child right. should not be held responsible for that. and she played exactly. no part in that. But she's bearing all the brunt of the problems. So Sophie takes her in and now she's got her younger brother, her sister, her sister's two kids. And this little girl, Edith, that she's taking care of. And Sophie herself is not a mom. But she just felt compelled to help this little girl. And they kind of bond really quickly. Like, Edith is obviously distraught over losing her mother. But she bonds to Sophie and follows her around. And, like, won't really talk to anyone or interact with anyone except Sophie. And so this carries on for a while. And she starts the commandant just has his eyes on her from day one, but it starts getting more intense where before it was kind of favors to the whole family of letting them have food or bringing them extra supplies, things that they needed for the Germans or for the hotel. And then it turned into special favors just for Sophie. And that's when the town really starts to turn on her specifically. And even her own family, like her little brother, I think he's 14 or so, maybe a little younger because he wasn't he wasn't old enough to go fight. So he's left behind, but he is very angry. And he starts to see the special favors that Sophie gets, the special treatment that she gets. And he's just like the town. He thinks that his older sister is like allying herself with the Germans. And so he starts to shun her. He won't even want to speak to her, engage with her. And it's frustrating because Sophie's, like, she hates feeling this way and she herself hates feeling like she's partnering with them or taking anything from them, but she also knows she has to do what she has to do to provide for her family. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. And so this all sort of escalates because – I think he promises to give Sophie word from her husband. She, you know, they had been writing letters back and forth, but then that kind of stops and she hasn't heard anything about him. She's trying to use her favor to hear updates on some of the townspeople and some of the people that they're worried about. And so she ends up making a bad choice, but also like we've said, an impossible choice to like sleep with the commandant because that's what he's been angling for he's i think he promises her that if she does like she can get a letter to her husband or or she'll he'll give him favors in or yeah. like protect him essentially which is and, just creepy
1: yes but then like if also, you like,
0: sleep with me
1: i will look after your husband like ew
0: Yeah, and it's so horrible because on the outside, you want to say, like, don't trust him. You know, he's saying just to get to sleep with you. You have no idea. But if you're that woman in the moment and you're so desperate thinking that your husband is in a camp being tortured, like, you'll hang on to any hope that you have. And so she sneaks away from their hotel one night and goes to the like barracks where they're all billeting so he had moved like out of the hotel by this point they were all kind of back in their station and she catches a ride like walks out into the country catches a ride gets to his private quarters and Goes through with this plan to sleep with him. But it ends very badly. Because she starts crying. In the middle of it. And yeah. which obviously. Like <laughs> that's not. A love interaction. At this point. It's a desperate person doing what she thinks she has to do. And being taken advantage of. But this. Yeah. And there were like moments
1: where. She felt a little connected to him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It despite you know what her brain was telling her like you know he's the enemy he's the enemy but she did like there were moments where they almost seemed like they could be friends in another life or in another circumstance and And so maybe perhaps that's what she was like counting on through this whole interaction but I don't blame her for you know not being able to go through with it
0: right and I think it speaks to one the manipulation of yes The Germans and the people in power. But then also at the same time, like... Even the humanity. Even of, like, a monstrous person like this. Who's doing these awful things. At their core is still human. Like, he's still a human who is interested in art. And that was one interest that they shared together. So they were able to, like, find a commonality and talk about that. Which... In a horrible situation like wartime, I think that you just hold on to any little piece of normalcy that you can get, yeah, and it's it's a lot easier for your mind to separate almost as a survival instinct, like if you just think about how awful these people are twenty four seven you will go insane. but if you can grab onto the one little positive, you just have to hold on to it, yeah, that makes sense she sleeps with him has this bad interaction it really angers him hurts his pride obviously no person wants that like I think he thought he felt that connection more yeah he was doing it as a sign of their connection where she was doing it as an act of desperation to try to save her husband and yeah. so and he said something like,
1: This isn't what I wanted, like I wanted the woman in the painting.
0: Yes, because he had he had fantasized and projected a whole story about her based off of this beautiful, almost seductive type painting. Mm-hmm. And that's it's not the fantasy was not matching up to the reality of a war torn starving woman. Like And that angered him. That made him really mad. So he throws her out. And she basically knows that like the clock is ticking now for her. Because he's not going to let this go. He's embarrassed her. And it's only a matter of time before she is also sent off like this other woman in town. So. Of course that time comes. And part one ends with Sophie being sent off to... Like a work camp basically Um, yeah and then any
1: idea that jojo gave you that he was a decent person instantly vanishes yeah Yeah. (laughs) but she i think she did a good job of like you said like showing the human side of him and the normal side of him that he could relate to her and then it just completely vanishes in that moment. But it was interesting the way this book was written also, because I'm used to the dual timelines, like, pretty mm-hmm. much happening instantly, whereas this book, I would say, like, the first third or so was about Sophie.
0: Yes. There's, like, part one is all about her, and then you flip to part two, which is the dual timeline. And then kind of the back half is where you start to intersect a little bit. Yeah. So, like, that first part kind of ends on a cliffhanger because she's just, like, loaded into a truck being sent off and you don't know, like, if yeah. she lives through it, does she not? That's how she gets you because you're, like, drawn into this story
1: and then it's, like, bam, you're thrown into another that relates to it, but then you're, like, reading, reading, reading. be like, okay, but what happens to Sophie, you know?
0: Yes, it doesn't. it doesn't finish the complete story at first. So... Then we jump to part two, which is set in what I'm going to call present day, but it was like 2000s, which, you know, is still present day, even though it's 2022. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still going to think of like anything from 2010. I'm like, okay, it's that's yeah, that's that's present day. That is present day. (laughs) So we jump to the storyline, and it's featuring Liv Halston, and she is the young. Widow she's 28 when she's widowed okay so let's just oh my god let's just I, sit let's... with that for a minute <laughs> as we are both 28 unmarried people I was like oh, yeah gosh. I was like oh can't relate yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> as I sit here with my cat
0: <laughs> yeah exactly so she is the young widow of a famous architect and she is still reeling from the death of her husband, David, because it was very sudden. I think it was like when we meet her, it's like a year out. Maybe it's coming up on the anniversary or a two year anniversary, but she's still upset. Like this was the love of her life taken from her. She's still struggling with this emotionally. She's financially struggling because He was like the breadwinner with his architect designs and his architectural company. But we find out that she is the current owner of Sophie's painting. So we've jumped decades ahead in time, but the painting is the commonality. And she, it was a gift from her husband. They bought it on a whim when they were on vacation, on their honeymoon. They literally just ran into a woman Like, cleaning out her mom's stuff and setting it out on the street. And her husband, David, liked the painting, was drawn to it. And not really – not the same way as the Commandant. But he – I just think that speaks to what this painting was, that it kind of struck people immediately when they saw it. Yeah, it left an impression. Yes. And so he bought it to give to Liv. And so she – Has always loved the painting. Because now especially after her husband's death. This is like a special tie. It's something that he bought for her. A special moment that they shared. But she's always been drawn to the painting as well. Because of like the mystery that surrounds it. And other people see see it as a painting of a beautiful woman. But I think she connects more with like wondering about the soulful side of the woman in the painting. And like. Mm -hmm wondering about who was this woman what's her backstory and so she live lives in this glass house basically that was one of her husband's designs it's like been featured in magazines and it's this icon I guess in their town which I would not want to live in a glass house no I was like I love natural light but that sounds terrible yeah but I also feel like you'd be baking because even sometimes in like one row of windows with the the sun just right you will get downright warm and I'm like I would not but it has this cool feature where like the roof can open to make like a sunroof on a house which I do think that would be very cool but I also wondered about logistically how that was possible. <laughs> yeah, it made me question it. I was like, I'm obviously not
1: smart enough to think of this, but how?
0: Yeah. <laughs> but We're just rolling with it. And so she is living in this house, struggling. Um, she ends up taking a roommate, like a kind of random person, and just to have someone there to have company with her, help her out with money a little bit. And so at the same time that we're meeting Liz, we also meet – paul McCafferty, and he is a detective of sorts for a really specialized unit that deals with like finding stolen pieces specifically stolen art and so he has been contacted by a family and his next big job is to find a stolen painting from this famous painter, Edouard Leferve. And he, like, in more recent years, Edouard has, his art has really taken off in popularity and become really, like, famous. He's become kind of a well-known artist. And so he's been tasked with hunting down this one specific painting. But he doesn't have a lot of leads to go on. So uh, this these two stories intersect because, well, they intersect. I guess I'll back up a little bit. <laughs> to... See, this is where I'm saying that there are so many storylines <laughs> I was
1: like, in this book.
0: Well, I, my timing, I can't get right. Because, so, like, we know that this is what Paul's next project is we we said it's a dual format book but we almost get a little bit of like a three format because we start alternating between Paul and Liv and like their separate stories are woven in before they meet but they meet at a bar because Liv is going to drink her sorrows away and Paul is there because it's either his brother or his friend that owns the bar I can't remember but either way They're both there. They get to talking. They kind of strike up a friendship. Her Liv's purse is stolen with all of her money. So she's already struggling for money and she had this cash and then her bag is stolen. So it's just turned into an even worse night. But Paul is like, I'll help you. Like, I kind of work in law enforcement. I know some people. I'll see if I can track this down for you. So he really helps her, like, walks her home gets her a cab or whatever and helps her find her back so they strike up this connection and friendship and i think they both kind of like feel sparks and his friend is definitely like oh yeah like help out the bag lady so they have met and meanwhile we know that paul's mission is trying to find this long lost painting that Edouard Laferve had done. And so he happens to just see it in an architectural magazine. And that's really like the last known sighting of it. And he is starting to try to track like through that track, like kind of trace backwards and find where this painting has ended up. But he doesn't know that the person featured in the magazine is the late husband of the woman that he met at the bar. So, like, we as the reader kind of know those stories. So, it all ends up where Liv and Paul go on a date, casual. They kind of start having this connection. It ends up that Paul realizes that this is the wife, uh, the widow of... The architect and when he goes into her home he sees the painting and he's like oh my gosh and this is where he has a chance he has a chance from the beginning to like set the record straight mm-hmm. and he doesn't because he and Liv sleep together and she has the painting like over her bed which I think is a is an odd choice yeah because I, I would just feel like you're being watched all the time but yes. there was something about the way the light like hits it in that spot that was just really beautiful so that's where she left it so when they get there when they get into her house it's dark they sleep together whatever okay the morning comes the light hits the painting in the exact right way and paul is like oh my gosh this is the painting this is the person It all starts to click and he has the chance to come clean. I was
1: like, and again, here's your chance, Paul.
0: (laughs) Yeah. He has the chance to come clean and be like, okay. Because I think at this point she knows that people are like searching for the painting. And so it ends up that they're like on dual sides. He doesn't tell her that he's the person responsible for hunting down the painting He just basically, like, jumps out of bed and runs away, which is a horrible feeling. This woman has been, like, emotionally fragile. This is kind of her first foray into dating again. She feels a really great connection. And they have a really great night together. And then he just wakes up and is like, hey, I got to go and runs, basically runs out of the house, like, almost literally.
1: That is a confidence booster. Am I right, ladies?
0: (laughs) That's horrible. That's so right. horrible. Like, uh, oh my gosh, I felt so bad for her. And she's kind of like, what the heck happened? Because they had a really good connection. She thinks every, you know, feeling yeah. all good about herself. And then that happens. So It all comes
1: back to communication.
0: Yes. Which, again, men are not good at. They seem to be the common denominator in a <laughs> yes. lot of communication problems.
1: So, Absolutely.
0: But eventually it does come out that paul is basically a detective working on behalf of the very extended lafer family trying to get this painting back because it was stolen they claim the family claims that it was stolen by the germans and so that's how it landed in his desk and how he kind of got involved in it because that's what he specializes in is reclaiming like lost artifacts of war, basically. So it becomes this huge legal battle of who has the rights to this painting. Is it, should it automatically revert back to the family that it was stolen from? Or does it stay with Liv because it was like purchased legally? And she's really upset about it because like we've said she feels such a strong connection to this and she grasps at it as like one of the last pieces of her husband
1: and yes. now and this she didn't is to get away yeah and she didn't do anything wrong like she right. didn't she didn't, know. It. she didn't know and like you said it was her last kind of piece of her husband maybe the thing that she was closest to he gave it to her and now they're like coming to take it away from her so I mean it's hard I was definitely torn because like I see the family's point I do like a lot of artwork was stolen if it disappeared during that time that's a completely valid assumption that it was also stolen but then I understand Liv's point of view because she didn't do anything wrong and I think this story as enjoyable as it is it does like kind of point out the um, kind of like I don't know the dual perspectives of the restoration of stolen artwork during wartime
0: yeah and it really takes it to Like, nothing is black and white. Like, at a first glance, I think you would immediately say, yes, stolen property needs to be returned no matter what. But then you read a story like this, and you're like, okay, actually, there's some leeway because, like, now this is her personal property. Right, because she didn't steal it. If she stole it, then, yeah, absolutely take it back
1: from her. But she didn't. And it gets very, very tricky, and I... I would hate to be involved in a case like that. It would, oh, like you said, so much gray
0: area. But it also like super piqued my interest because I never knew. I think this was the first novel I read that really dealt with this. And I mm-hmm. feel like it's kind of a forgotten or hidden aspect of wartime, which I did a little research yeah. on stolen art. Um, yeah, but it was, so, it was such an interesting concept to me that... I think we as a society and education focus so much on the overarching themes of war and like human losses, which obviously are very important. But then when you hear about something like this, it just hits it home even more that nothing was safe in wartime. Right. Like not a painting on your home of your wife was, you know, you can't take it for granted.
1: Yeah. And I, I read something in preparation that Jojo Moyes was like, I, you hear about the art restoration of World War II and all the stor- stolen art that Hitler took, but you don't really hear about it from World War I. And that's why she mm-hmm. decided to set this during World War I to kind of bring attention to that war and everything that was lost, including the stolen art.
0: Which I appreciate because most of our historical fiction novels are set during World War II, which is why I defaulted to calling them Nazis. (laughs) They were not. So it is good to, you know, broaden the horizons a little bit. Yes. But so this really puts Liv and Paul on opposite sides because now like his job is to do whatever he can to get this artwork back and she is wanting to cling to it as tightly as she can and like they still feel this mutual attraction but they're on opposite sides which is really hard and she's got a lawyer friend that's helping her out to see if she has a case to keep it like she's she's ready to go tooth and nail to fight to keep it even Despite- though Oh yeah I think well yeah even though her, same thing. yeah even though her lawyer and basically everyone is counseling her like you probably won't win this case there's a lot of precedent set yeah that will you know most of these cases say it needs to be returned back to the original family like you're gonna bury yourself in legal fees trying to do this and you probably won't win but she just feels that strongly about it and she's like I don't care I'm ready to do whatever it takes like fight as hard as I can. Mm -hmm. she needed a cause to fight for after everything that happened and so and i think she's also started to she kind of questions their motives of the family's motives of like why now yes why has it been so long and you're just now wanting to find this and she starts doing research and finds out that Edouard kind of rose to prominence and she thinks that this family is only in it for the money. And she doesn't want to let go of that because she holds on to the painting for sentimental reasons and personal reasons, not just the value of it. And so through the stories, like time goes on, court cases kind of drag on. Liv becomes really villainized in the press. Like the press gets a hold of it and they think that she is like bad for not willingly give this up like how could you keep a piece of art that was stolen illegally during the wartime and that makes you just as bad as them and they really like everyone kind of pits against her but she keeps up the battle and yeah she starts- the public
1: loves a villain
0: oh absolutely and it's just unfortunate that it is her because, like we said, like she didn't do anything wrong. She's just caught in the crosshairs of this. But she starts to do her own research because she's basically like the only way that I can hold on to this is that if we prove that it was not stolen, like everyone is assuming that it was stolen because how would this prized painting in possession have disappeared? Like the last the family knew was that it disappeared and so how did it get here but she's trying to hold on to the fact that maybe it wasn't like if I can prove that it wasn't stolen and so she does her own research gets kind of deep into it and then meanwhile Paul on the opposing side is starting to have doubts as well like he's he's trying to follow the same steps to prove his side Mm mm-hmm But then along the way, I think he starts to have doubts as well about this. Um, So it was a a lot of, like, good tension in the novel.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I love how she she tackles these kind of hard-hitting, I don't know, subjects in her Mm -hmm. books. But brings a unique and maybe unexpected point of view. So, like, in Me Before You... You have, you know, the story of a, a quadriplegic man who mm-hmm. can no lo- like, who no longer wants to live his life in a wheelchair, and wants, you know, it to be his decision if he lives or dies, and, which is extremely controversial, right? Mm-hmm. And then now you have the, you know, stolen art conflicts in this book, but it's controversial because now it she's kind of framing it. So the family who had the artwork stolen from them is maybe not looking like they're doing it for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And that the person who bought it live is actually the one who, you know, wants artwork for just like a truly good reason. Like, like you said, sentimental value over money. Mm. And I just, I like how she's like able to tackle them like these subjects but then take the side that you don't expect because it's yes like you said in most cases you want to be like return the artwork to the family but in this case if it's just out of greed and they don't actually care about it they just want the money Mm -hmm. then who really deserves it or who should really have it I don't know I just I like how she takes kind of the unexpected side
0: Yes, and she makes you think, like, it's so easy to to sit in our bubble in today's mind frame and pop off of this is what's right, this is what's wrong. But yes. she really makes you think about both sides and the multi facets of an issue.
1: Um, yeah, and that you actually have to read into the issue and know, you know, a lot of details about it to come to a conclusion rather than just like reading a headline And making your decision off of that.
0: Yes. So. uh, As. Paul and Liv. Go along. Each trying to prove their own case. They meet. Like they go deep into the history of this painting. They. Liv tries to track down the person that they bought it from. That she and her husband bought it from. To see like where did she get it from. And. They're going so far as to visit the town of Saint Peron in France and like see if there's anything left of the family, anything left of the inn that they lived in. Um, just really doing what sounds like awesome research. Like it's uh, horrible to be in that yeah, like situation. I have to go to France to look into this. Yeah, exactly. Um, but she, so, she wants to find out, like, what happened to Sophie. Like, how did this.
1: As did I.
0: Oh, yeah. As everyone. (laughs) So, Liv hunts down, like, the last known family member of Sophie's family. It's an old man in a nursing home. He is her nephew. So, her little brother, Aurelian. It's his son. And. She goes to meet him, gets to talk to him, and the family that is – the extended family – oh, my God, bless America. <laughs> We're just going to have to leave it in because she's not going to stop, so it's going to be fine. Garden well, on duty. Yeah. Yeah, when it's a literal human coming <laughs> to my door, she does nothing <laughs> but batten down the hatches for the squirrel in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Typical. So Liv goes to visit this man and finds out that the family, the extended family, had been there before trying to get information from him, and he wasn't really having it because he was like, I've never met these people before, but they're trying to say they're part of my family. They're doing this to get the painting back and blah, blah, blah. But he is willing to give Liv more information, and he kind of gives her a family history book that says that Sophie was killed in the camp and never heard from again and he's like my my dad Aurelian like we were not allowed to speak her name growing up he basically like Aurelian basically cast Sophie out after yeah her after he thought that she allied herself with the Germans he gave up on her and like carried a lot of that resentment but they still have these old family artifacts. And so he gives everything that he has from that time, this old man, Aurelian son, gives it to live for her to go through. And so she starts going through those things and she's finally able to track down Edith, who was the little girl that Sophie had taken in. And this is where so like we're getting the backstory but then we're also seeing how things play out in the courtroom yes the two depositions and well i guess i'll back up because really i guess paul finds her or brings her to testify because paul kind of saves the day at the end I hope
1: you're not asking me because I have no recollection
0: of it. Okay. Well, the clincher is that. I
1: am also listening. I'm like being told a bedtime story (laughs) over here. I was like, oh, my God.
0: Yeah. She went to see the nephew. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. But then there was also a side plot where she tries to find, like, the woman that she bought the painting from and anything that her mother had. Mm -hmm. And she finds a bunch of journals two that Paul looks Mm -hmm. through. But it comes to find out where they're, like, wrapping up the case. Paul and Liv are not speaking at this point. Like, they have some moments of trying to reconcile. But he, at the end of the day, he just wants her to, like, just give it up and let this all be over. Like, you're obviously very stressed. I want what's best for you. This is taking a toll on you. Just... Like, give up the painting and this will all be over and we can move on with our lives. And she just will not go for it. So it kind of ends with this dramatic courtroom scene, which I also love. Yes, we
1: love a good you-can't-handle-the-truth scene. Yes,
0: absolutely. So this old, old woman is brought in. And so it turns out that this woman, this older woman, is Edith, who is the little girl That Sophie took in after her mother was taken away by the Germans. And so she lived there at the inn with Sophie and her family until Sophie was taken away. And then she lived there with Sophie's sister. And she tells the story about how bad things were after Sophie left. How it kind of fractured the family. Aurelian the brother, was very angry and upset. Her sister, Sophie's sister, was upset. And kind of left now to fend for everyone all on her own. And they get a letter one day. And they had had no word from Sophie at this point. But they get this like mysterious letter dropped off to the house. And Sophie's sister snatches it up. And Edith, the little girl, tried to grab it first to read it. And her sister snatched away. And she's like, do not tell anyone about this. Not like definitely don't tell Aurelian we have to keep this to ourselves. And so it's a letter from Sophie saying that they she and Edward were reunited in the camp and they were able to escape. But they know they cannot come back home to St. Paul right. Because of the feelings. So they've been living in Switzerland and they're safe they're reunited. They've got new names. They're living a very quiet country life. Like they're healthy. They're together. You know, we know we can't come home. And so her sister is overjoyed because she has obviously thought her s- Sophie was dead this whole time. And that's when she tells the little girl, you can't tell anyone about this. No one ever has to know. And that. Her final instruction is to give this painting to the commandant because even after all of this, he was the one that helped Sophie and Edward get free. So she's like, this is what I owe him for saving our lives is to finally give him this painting that he's coveted for so long. So Helene sends Edith to deliver the painting and he's like, why are you doing this? And he sees that it's the painting. He thanks her for it. And then Edith tells him Sophie is dead. And she said she died, but we received instructions to give you this painting. She died of the Spanish flu in the camps. And this German is shocked because he thinks that he was able to get her free. Mm -hmm. And she... Edith lies to him and tr- upsets him by saying that she died. And she gives him the painting. He's moved by it. He flips it over and he sees this message on the back from Sophie. And it says, To air commandant who will understand, not taken, but given. Mm-hmm. And so that's the final testimony that seals the deal in this court case because from Sophie's own hand, according to this woman, The painting was given to him, not stolen. Yes, Edith. Yes. So she seals the deal. And Paul was the one who brought her to the courtroom. And he, at the very end, kind of flipped sides and realized that, like, how important this was to live and how she wanted it for reason, like, The right reasons, which every time I say or hear that phrase, I think of The Bachelor. (laughs) So I'm like mentally giggling about the right reasons. That's like a token phrase from The Bachelor and Bachelorette because that's what they always say. Like, I want to make sure that I find a man who's here for the right reasons. They'll say it. If you ever watch that show now, you will notice they say it at least once an episode.
1: Is it like a drinking game now?
0: (laughs) Yes. Literally, yes. (laughs) It's one of the things. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she, Paul realizes that this family just wants it so that they can turn around and sell it and make it the most profit that they can. And they're not really going to cherish the painting and have it for the reason that people have art, which is because you feel a connection with it. And because it's a priced possession, like they're treating this as a cash cow. And so that is what kind of inspires him to help live and Mm -hmm. help kind of get on her side. And so it ends with them reuniting, which is lovely. And they have this scene where, you know, the courtroom all goes into chaos because she said, you know, not taken, but given. And so everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is it. And the judge is like, all right, miss, you're free to go. You can keep your painting. And Liv's like, okay, Paul, let's get out of here. And this whole time they'd been going in the side door because the media had been so frenzied That they literally had to sneak live in and out of the courtroom because people were like outside mobbing essentially Mm -hmm. and upset with her. And so at the end he said he's like, Okay, let's go. And he said, We're going out the front door this time. And I thought that was so sweet. Because she won the case. Is it bad
1: that like when I read that though, I pictured like the legally blonde Room exit. Oh, <laughs> <Whatever>. absolutely. <laughs> that is exactly what I pictured. <laughs> absolutely.
0: So it ends with an epilogue and it kind of flashes forward in time to Paul and Liv at a holiday together. Paul has a daughter. She's over there at the house because Paul's divorced. So he's got his daughter. The friend slash roommate that Liv had had is there Paul's brother's there like it kind of ends with a happy little get-together scene and so yeah it ends with her getting to keep the painting and and you
1: kind of get a glimpse into Sophie and Edward's life too in Switzerland I liked that just as much because you get so attached to Sophie and so invested into her story and then she kind of disappears for the rest of the book, Mm -hmm. you know, with that cliffhanger. Um, But you do like get a little peek into their life in Switzerland. It's like, you know, they're in a small town on the edge of a lake and they kind of keep to themselves. He has his art and they just, they're seen around town, but they're like kind of the quiet old couple that know like they moved in one day and, Mm-hmm. Nobody really bothers them and they don't bother anybody. And I think it's so cute. I know. It's I sad. It. It's sad that that's the way that they were able to be together. Yeah. But and the then woman again, they like
0: to live. Like,
1: yes. But then a lot of people didn't even get that. So.
0: Exactly. It was happy to know that they made it out, even though it's maybe a little bittersweet because you know they yes. can't go home they can't be with the rest of their family but at least they were together yeah and, and their families the can't
1: best. even know that they're alive yeah making the best out of it so yeah so it i'm so torn about a lot of things like the the whole art thing i think was settled very well um mm-hmm. and then it's like was the german guy the commandant was he a bad person was he a good person was he like all of us flawed was yeah but i don't know i think you everyone's naturally good and bad you just it's what you choose to act on right right
0: it's like the what's the old story about like there's two wolves inside you and it's the good and the bad wolf and then it's whichever one you feed is the one that goes
1: yeah so so do you agree with edith telling him that sophie had died even though like so he sent her to the camp right which we all thought was like terrible but he sent her to the same camp to be reunited with, with her husband yes and, and then, then- they escaped the camp together, right? Or did he get them out of the camp?
0: I think he pulled some strings to get them out. Yes, like I think someone helped them. Like I'm gonna leave this gate open and walk away, right? Oh, so, well, you, yeah, yeah. So I think it was one of those things. But I mean, I. I think Edith is right to tell him that because one, it, it's an extra layer of protection for Sophie. Yeah. Now you don't have to worry about this man ever trying to find like, hunt her down or find her. Yes. And two, it's a way to stick it to him, I guess. Like.
1: Yeah, because he, he did a lot of bad things. Yes. And I felt kind of like he was trying to make up for all that by helping this one person. Hmm. And so I could say I'm not mad that she said that to him
0: (laughs) you know was it right right? I don't know like the thing of here's your pain you've got what you want and she died anyways it's like that kind of yeah you know yeah so
1: I don't know I just I love she always just seems to take the unexpected route with her plot lines and I really love that and make you think like yes like you think you're picking up like just like this historical fiction novel like here we go again but she the way she writes it and kind of the plot lines that she chooses makes you think a little bit deeper than I'm expecting whenever I pick up that sort of novel
0: right and again it's so we picked this book you'd read it and then you sent it to me I hadn't read it yet but when we decided to do this which we were going to do it earlier in the summer which is why I read it when I did and then we switched Yeah. This. so but I didn't really know what it was about. I you no, know, we just decided to do it. So I'm like, I'm going to read it regardless of what it's about. I just read it. It's got the stereotypical wartime cover of like a man and a woman kissing in yeah. time clothes. That's it actually like at, a different um, cover. Than normal. I know. I did. When I was doing some research, they had a title of like just text. And mm-hmm. the copy that I have is like two figures embracing and from the cover and from the title like this is not what I thought this book was going to be about at all yes this, exactly it gives the total stereotypical wartime novel vibe of like a soldier off to war but that was really such a small part of it that it wasn't was it wasn't part. because you don't get you don't really get those big off to war scenes with Edward and Sophie, because he's already like gone.
1: Yeah, you get like a brief history of their
0: romance.
1: Yes. And then it's about Sophie and Liv and their kind of connection to the painting from then on.
0: Yes. So I like that. It's unexpected, but in the good ways.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. So that is The Girl You Left Behind by Jojo Moyes. Moyas. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're just highly all recommend. of
0: inaccuracies in <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Right.
1: laughs> it's been so, a long week you know uh, out yeah. here yeah taking it um, with a grain of salt exactly this is just for fun guys um yeah. <laughs> but yeah I I highly recommend this book I enjoyed it even more than I expected to And I've really enjoyed all of her books. I'm sure we'll cover another one in the future.
0: And like I said, it touches on a piece of history that I think is a lot of times forgotten about. Mm -hmm. Which then incidentally, I read another book that deals with stolen art during wartime that was really good. And that just has like fascinated me because it's such... Art is such a personal thing, especially a portrait of someone's family. Mm -hmm. The The fact that
1: it was stolen is just, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, like, so dehumanizing. And I see all these things, like, on TikTok or whatever about how to, to decorate your home and not be dated. And the thing now is, like, fill it with unique art, not just sayings on boards or you know like yes sign that says gather in your kitchen or whatever yeah it's like that's a way to really personalize your space and so when you think about it that way to have that stolen by soldiers is so like demoralizing and dehumanizing like you're already taking everything from these people by starving them out causing their families to go off to war and now you come in and you take like personal artifacts from them. It's just really it was awful.
1: Yeah. Nothing was safe.
0: Yeah. But I did come across, so in my research, I came across this was an article from 2014 from what? artnet.com. And the headline is 100 years later, painting looted during World War I returned to France. Wow. And I think that's so cool. And it's another, it's a painting of a woman holding a book. And um, it had been returned to a museum by the German government. So, wow. wow. Cool to see parallels of that happening as recently as 2014. Like, that's eight years ago, but still. And you know they're still uncovering them. Oh, absolutely. And I think it would be like how cool to have Paul's job to make that your mission and to work on. But then you get embroiled in situations like this of like, okay, who's really right. And yeah. How does it come down? It would be a tough job, but also very interesting.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I think that wraps it up for me on the girl you left behind. You really carried this one. It's been a long time.
0: Yeah. Since
1: I've read it. Um,
0: and again, like, I glossed over a lot of things. Probably went out of order on some things because there's so many, like, even the minor characters, the townspeople during part one of Sophie's story. And then the bar owner and the friend that live have, like, they have little vignettes and play portions in the story that we didn't even touch on. So yeah. there's definitely a lot to uncover. Absolutely. As always. And- would love to see this be a, a movie or a TV show. Yes,
1: yeah, they they did just adapt one, I think, either late last year or earlier this year of her books.
0: Last letter from your lover.
1: Yes, I want to read that. I haven't watched the movie. It looks really good, but it is good.
0: I've watched it. Did so? You watched it? I want to read the yes. book. Yeah. I can see this being a Netflix movie because we need a good courtroom scene like this. Okay. Yeah. Written very well. We need to see it in film. So. Yes. Maybe we'll speak that into the universe.
1: You heard it here first, folks.
0: As always, thank you all for listening. We've got one more episode for the month of October, which will be. I'm sorry. October. Oh my God. It is August. (laughs) to be fair i've worked a lot enough hours this week that i should be able to just take all of tomorrow off yet i'm not so you should (laughs) my brain is fried the month of august i'm just so ready for fall i we're gonna go right
1: we're ready we're ready for spooky season we're ready for boston salem
0: yeah we're gonna go with that okay one more for the month (laughs) of august (laughs) a double feature (laughs) I was going to say something like, wow,
1: this year is really flying by, and then you dropped October in there, and I was like, whoa. (laughs) And then I just
0: took a month and a half off of it to make it even more. Exactly. Oh, wow.
1: Okay. Yes, a double
0: feature
1: where we each picked an autobiography by one of our favorite celebrities. I'm really excited about this. I think we talked about this from the beginning. I read mine recently. I went to see this person in concert earlier this year. So I'm going to have a lot to talk about. I'm very excited.
0: I can't wait. Can't wait. So, as always, thank you all for listening. Be sure to follow us along on Instagram at Life and Lit Pod. You can interact with, us, interact with us on there. We love getting to read comments and interactions from you guys. You can send us an email at lifeandlitpod at gmail.com. And be sure to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever program that you listen on. And we love to see those too. I just saw that we um, have a five-star rating on Spotify. So how exciting is that? Hey, thank you. Yeah. So pretty cool. And we will be back next week with our double feature. But until then, happy reading. Happy reading.